Thanks for tuning in. And here I am in beautiful Colorado, and I have an incredible episode to share with you. I am speaking with Congresswoman Diana DeGette. She has been serving the residents of Colorado as well as this nation for over 25 years. She's been in public service. She tells us about why she chose public service as well as some of her signature legislation, and there's lots of it. When Congresswoman DeGette joined the United States House of Representatives, it was only 12% women in Congress. It's doubled, but it's still only about 30%. Today, she talks about some of the powerful positions that women like herself hold um, in Congress, as well as her signature legislation, and there's lots of it. Her work in healthcare, making sure that drug prices are affordable, like insulin for everyone. What we need to do to bring back rights that were taken away, as in the devastating Dobbs decision, she talks about her optimistic view for what still needs to be done by Congress and how she works across the aisle and all of those things. It was my absolute honor to speak with Congresswoman Diana DeGette. I want to thank her for her many years of public service. Please subscribe to Inspiring Women to hear so many of these incredible stories. But now let's hear from Congresswoman Diana DeGette. This is Inspiring Women, and I am so excited today. I'm speaking with Congresswoman Diana DeGette. And Congresswoman, thank you so much for being on Inspiring Women. You are an inspiring woman. And I just want to kick off. You just came back from Japan. You're doing so many things um, for us in the state of Colorado and for the nation. You have been in public service for over 25 years, 14 consecutive terms here as a Congresswoman in Colorado. Thank you for your service. What drew you to public service? Well, thank you. First of all, thank you for having me on. I've been excited uh, to talk about my journey a little bit. I went to, I, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, and I came from a completely apolitical family, no politics at all. And uh, when I was a girl, there was a, this was the 1970s, there was a show on TV called The Storefront Lawyers. They actually had a woman lawyer. And so I decided right there and then I was going to be a lawyer and I was going to help people. That's what I wanted to do. So I ended up going to law school on a scholarship for public interest, moved back to Denver the next day and started a legal career. And at some point during my career, I I accidentally got involved in volunteering in political campaigns, but I also realized that I could help people one client at a time, or I could actually get elected to office and write the laws that helped people. Mm -hmm. And so um, just coincidentally, my longtime state legislator, Jerry Copel, announced his retirement in 1992. And so I decided to run for the state legislature. Even though I was in the minority party in the state legislature, I was able to pass some environmental legislation that was that is still being used to this day to clean up environmentally contaminated sites. And also um, I, I passed the bubble bill, which was a bill designed to help um, patients at abortion clinics get access into those clinics. And that bill, uh, not only uh, it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, 
and it was upheld. And then it was confirmed a couple of years ago. So then when my long-term Congresswoman, Pat Schroeder, who was an icon, mm -hmm. she announced that she was retiring unexpectedly in 1996. And so I decided to run for the seat and the rest is history. Yeah. Well, you've been doing a fantastic job again. I can't thank you enough. Your signature issues, there are many, but you certainly have been heavily involved in healthcare and women's rights. And I want to talk a little bit about both of those things. But before we do, when you joined Congress, I, I went back, I looked at the numbers. There were only 12% women um, at that time. And here we are 25 plus years later. Um, we're more than double, but we're still less than 30 percent. So I just appreciate knowing um, a bit of that perspective. Is diversity important? What have you seen changed? Um, just give us a perspective on sure. that. Well, um, even though we're still far fewer than we should be, 30% is a lot better than 12% mm -hmm. because it's kind of like you get to a tipping point. And now we have women who are the chairs or the ranking Democrats on key committees and not just healthcare or women's issues, but issues like the um, uh, banking committee, the financial services committee, Maxine Waters and other, the appropriations committee, Rosa DeLauro. Uh, and so there are many, many key positions that women are in, which helps which helps influence public policy in every way. I think the most important position that we have had, of course, was when Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House. Yes. Because, because she comes at that position with her perspective as a mom of five, as a woman. And so I'll give you an, a perfect example of why this is really important. Uh, after the Dobbs decision was decided last year, that terrible decision, that allowed states to pretty much ban abortion. She, I, I called Nancy, I had just had happened to be with Nancy the night before here in Denver. And I called her up the next morning. I'm the co-chair of the pro-choice caucus. And I said, Nancy, we need to put the bill that will codify, that will put into law the Roe versus Wade. And I have the votes to do that. We have enough votes to pass it. This is the next morning. And she goes, okay, Diana, we'll do it. And the next week we put that bill, the Women's Health Protection Bill on the floor and we were able to pass it through the house. I'm not sure if we had had a male speaker of the house, this issue would have been nearly as urgent. Well, let's let's talk more about that. I actually wanted to close with that most um, egregious Dobbs decision because we're at the year mark yes. of it passing, and you know through the Supreme Court. And so, are we able to turn back the clock? What do you think um, is going to be needed when we, we both had the opportunity to? Um, you invited me to see uh, Vice President Kamala Harris. She was talking about that. That was incredible. And um, but I have to say, um, I am not feeling hopeful. What what can we do? What should we do? Should we be hopeful that we can turn back the clock? Well, I, when I when I look at the Dobbs decision, of course, it was a horrible decision. It, for the first time in our nation's history, we took away the Supreme Court took away a right that had been given. Right, and so that was shocking. But in a way, it was a wake up call for America because immediately, the next day, people in thirteen states lost their access to abortion because the right wing had been passing all of these laws year after year after year, 
that banned abortion or severely restricted it, they never thought they would actually win. Yeah. And so then Dobbs came down the next day, suddenly people couldn't get the health care that they needed. And it had an immediate impact all throughout the country, not just in states like Texas, where it's illegal, but in states like Colorado, which were now, it's legal here, but now we were inundated with people coming from other states. And so it was, so I've never seen an issue where people overnight switch to realizing how important it is for people to have the freedom to make their own healthcare choices. So, so now where the Republican party is left is, is they have this patchwork of laws where in some states it's illegal, some states it's legal, where people, where women are being hurt every day. And you're hearing these horror stories, people who are suffering a miscarriage, being told to go sit in their car until they get sepsis. Mm-hmm. 11 year olds who are, or who have been uh, the products of incest having to go to other states and on and on and on. And this is not gonna end because this is real life. It is real life. It's also, I'm just curious, many people pass it as a woman's issue and only a woman's issue and rights being taken away, I think is exactly the right qualification of what this is. I mean, as just, it is horrifying. It continues to be horrifying. Do you think that we can have voters, it will take voters, it will take the nation to see this as more than just a women's issue? Actually, if you look at polling right now, that is already beginning to happen. People are looking at it as a fundamental family, right? Mm -hmm. And men, just as much as women in most places, support people's freedom to make these healthcare decisions. So you asked me what can be done. Well, clearly what we need to do is we need to make a national law that puts Roe versus Wade into statute. Mm -hmm. And and, um, so, so we, as I said, we passed it not once, but twice before, mm-hmm. and then it got stuck in the Senate. But now something like 69% of Americans, people in red districts, independent voters, even Republican voters think that this should be the law of the land. And so the Republicans are really in a pickle because in many districts, their constituents believe that it shouldn't be politicians making these decisions, yes. but yet they're they're beholden to the right wing. So uh, we we just filed a petition uh, a couple of weeks ago to, uh, it's called a discharge petition, but what it does is if we can get a majority of the house, 218 people to sign this petition, it will bring the Women's Health Protection Act to the floor. So the first two days after we filed this petition, we got 211 people to sign it all Democrats. And so now what I'm saying is, okay, we need seven Republicans who are claiming they, that they don't think that the government should do this. You know, they're trying, there's 18 districts where congressional districts where 
Joe Biden won. Well, so. Congresswoman, you are yeah. known for working across the aisle in bipartisanship. So that is certainly a signature part of your career. Let's talk about another area that you are well known for, and that's just healthcare more broadly. So whether it's stem cell research, the Affordable Care Act, or the 21st Century Cures Act, you've had an enormous hand in all of those. Give us um, a sense of where you think has been the most impactful of some of the legislation that you've worked on. Well, I mean, I think you mentioned some of the key bills. The, the Affordable Care Act has given health care to millions of Americans who didn't have it before mm -hmm. and has made it affordable. And so I'm very proud of that achievement. Uh, that was really extraordinary. And I was the vice chair of the committee that had jurisdiction over that when we passed it. And then my stem cell uh, bill that I passed, I passed a bill. I was in the minority with that bill, and I had a Republican um, uh, partner on that, but this this uh, legalized ethical embryonic stem cell research, and and that research now is providing just just the last year, it's providing some hope for type one diabetics that yes. they will actually find a cure. Mm -hmm. Well, imagine if we found a cure. And then the the, the third thing you mentioned was the twenty first century cures bill again in a bipartisan way with Congressman Fred Upton from Michigan. And what this bill did is it totally restructured the way we do biomedical research in this country and then drug and device approval at the Food and Drug Administration. It was under the authorities that we gave in 21st Century Cures that we were able to get the expedited COVID vaccine approvals. So you know, I can't pick among my children. I think they're all important. <laughs> well, those are all amazing <laughs> advances, um, certainly. And the research and the innovation that's happening in medicine now is at an all-time, I think, high for somebody who's been working in innovation, healthcare, and technology for many years. But at the same time, we also know that healthcare is complicated. We also know it's expensive. So we're we're over a $4 trillion spend in healthcare. We're staring at over $7 trillion in the next less than 10 years. So in terms of um, hitting some of the very significant issues, the quadruple aim, how do we go about either bending the cost curve or really improving the health of the nation? What is left to be done that you think could really move the needle in those directions? Well, I, I think there, I, I could go on. We'll have to do another podcast <laughs> for all of my ideas, but but we, we really do have to change the paradigm for the um, for the reward system in healthcare, mm -hmm. drug drugs is a good example. It is is the way the um, uh, drug system has the the pharmaceutical system and insurance has developed. The reward is for higher and higher and higher drug prices, mm -hmm. not lower drug prices. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to restructure the way we do drug uh, drug. Um, insurance coverage. Yep. That's number one. And I could go on about that. I know we're already seeing some but of the negotiations on exactly. Medicare pricing. Yeah, part, Medicare Part D. Right. But that was a pretty limited bill. We'll see how it works. We may need to go even further. Um, as co-chair of the Diabetes Caucus, we're trying to pass a bipartisan bicameral bill to cap insulin pricing for everybody, yes. not just for seniors. And so, uh, so there's a lot of that. But in addition, we need to continue to shift the focus towards rewarding disease prevention and yeah. wellness. Uh, the way we, the way our system works right now, is is it there's incentives for for paying for treatments, 
but not prevention. And yep. there's a lot of things we can do. And there's that. and there's a move towards value-based care that we think is accelerating. So hopefully that'll be helpful, but um, keep working on it. There's so okay. much <laughs> to be done. One more area of healthcare, and let's talk about artificial intelligence, augmented intelligence. That's at an amazing pace of innovation um, right now, and hopefully can play a hand um, in bending some of these costs or improving some of these um, outcomes. Um, yet there's also people who are calling it, you know, there's a doomsday um, aspect about it. I'm just curious as to your thoughts on the role of AI in healthcare specifically, opportunities, should we be optimistic? Should we be cautious? What are your thoughts there? Well, one of the things that we really, um, that excited us when we were working on 21st Century Cures and then some follow-on legislation that we did was the idea of big data. And, you know, sometimes that's a bad phrase, yeah. big data. But in fact, if you can do research, aggregating data and being able to see trends and get, and get, um, and, and, and get some of the metrics that you wouldn't be able to get otherwise, this can lead to the cures even more quickly. You have to make sure that you do it in a way that protects patient privacy. You have to do it in a way that it's ethical. And so I think AI really has a lot of promise, but I also think we need to move very cautiously towards making sure that it's used in an ethical and responsible way. Should we expect regulatory frameworks to be emerging? Certainly, you know, in Europe, they're putting some beginnings of that out there. Do you anticipate that in the United States, we'll be able to have legislation to put some of those guardrails in place? So, um, We've already started working on this in Congress. I've met with my EU colleagues about their AI protocols, and we've we've had some meetings and some hearings already. And so I do think we're going to be trying to develop protocols, particularly in the healthcare space, but in other areas as well. Privacy is a big concern. Well, I tell you what, it's the, the, the sooner the better. And in the meantime, I do think caution and bringing in expertise around this issue for anybody, particularly in the area of healthcare where move fast and break things is not the best um, approach. Um, so also you're dealing with Congress. Mm -hmm. So this is the group where I actually heard someone, one of my colleagues at one point, talk about the internet as a series of tubes. <laughs> so, you know, there's a big learning curve on many members' parts. Yeah. So we that's why we really do, we're, we're, we're making laws. So we need to make sure what we do, uh, number one, makes sense, but also number two, that it that it supports the areas that we really want to develop. Yes. And the complications are absolutely there. One last issue on healthcare, and let's talk about mental health. Um, certainly we have sort of like the multiple crises coming out of the pandemic and mental health. Um, uh, uh, opioid has become like an even further crisis for the nation. We know in mental health that we have the CDC putting out a report that three out of five girls are feeling sad or hopeless. That was just earlier this year. The Surgeon General has put out a warning to us about social um, media in terms of that not, not being helpful, not that it's all bad, but not being helpful. So just in this area, given the, you know, particularly for girls, what are your thoughts there in terms of, can we change this dynamic in a way to both help the mental health of our girls 
goals? Um, and just, you know, what do you think needs to be done there? Well, wh- one thing I think that's glaring, and you're right, especially after the pandemic, but it's the one-two punch of the pandemic and social media, I think, that's really impacted girls and teenagers mm-hmm. in general. And I, and it, a lot of it just comes down to resources. We don't have enough, uh, uh, we don't have enough healthcare professionals. We don't have enough resources in the schools and in the community. And so that's one thing we've really been looking at in Congress is how can we get resources out, uh, loan forgiveness and, and incentives for people to go to get advanced degrees in mental health, uh, resources for school systems and others. I think that's really one thing that we can do in Congress. And then in terms of um, beyond just like providing the professionals, do you what do you think about in the social media realm? Um, is it more research that's needed there? Is it, you know, do we just need to turn the phones off? Do you have thoughts there? Well, I think, I mean, one thing I've learned in all my many years in elected office, you can't legislate everything. Mm -hmm. And I think people would like to try to legislate things. We've had a number of hearings about social media. And I think that it needs to be, number one, the, the companies themselves need to have strong guidelines but also parents need to understand the role that they have. And then, and then uh, we can, Congress can take action if there's illegal activity or something, but we can't legislate people using it. Um, um, we had, in my committee, we had a hearing where we brought the TikTok CEO mm-hmm. in and, and he was sitting there testifying about how they have all these protocols. You can't, you can't, can't log in if you're under 12. I'm going to tell you every 10 year old in this country knows how to get on. (laughs) So anybody who thinks that because they made this protocol uh, that it's safe, that's not true. And so what needs to happen is they need to have more sophisticated, um, more, more sophisticated programs and Parents need to be much more cognizant and teachers and all the rest of us. Well, Congresswoman, the um, the broad range of issues that you work on and have oversight on in particularly in healthcare, and also it's just so encouraging that you're not one of those Congress people who is not familiar with um, the ins and outs of technology, which I think is absolutely critical, just continues to be encouraging. I, again, want to just be so thankful of all of your service. Um, we didn't cover the many other issues that you work on that I know are near and dear to your heart, like um, the environment. But as we close out on this Inspiring Women um, interview, um, any last words of advice for either younger people, women seeking leadership positions, public service, or something that they might not know about you that brought you into it that would encourage them? Well, for uh, what I what I would have to say, first of all, thank you for getting this message out on your podcast, because I think it's important that people sort of hear the life journey. And, and um, I would really encourage younger women to, if if you don't want to run for office, that's fine. But there's so many ways that you can have an impact in your community, in your kid's school, any place, um, if you really care passionately about an issue. I always tell people, I'm, I'm seen as one of the leading experts in Congress on biomedical research. 
my highest level coursework in that is high school biology mm-hmm. at South High School here in Denver. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you care passionately about an issue, you can learn about it and you can actually can make a difference. Um, young women say to me, oh, I don't want to run for office because I don't want all that scrutiny. And I, and I always say, well, what is it that you do? Mm-hmm. You know, because I I. Um, I see it as a real honor to be able to represent my constituents and to work in my district and to try to improve the lives of people. I, th- I think it's an honor. And I think people should think about that. Well, I think it's an honor as well. And it's an honor to be here talking to you and also the most successful women, as we all know, um, regardless of what they know, they are lifelong learners and they become expert in those things. This has been an amazing, inspiring women conversation. I have been speaking with Congresswoman Diana to get and congresswoman thank you so very much thank you this has been an episode of inspiring women with Lori mcgraw please subscribe rate and review we are produced by kate cruz at executive podcast solutions more episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show i am Lori mcgraw and thank you for listening